If you have a Bible this morning, why don't you go ahead and turn to the book of Zephaniah. Zephaniah. I like to do this. Uh, I've been doing this uh, the past few, or several of the past few weeks. How many of you have read Zephaniah before? Hey, you know what? Our, our, our number of hands is actually growing over the course of this series. Like, you guys are reading ahead. I love it. If you read ahead this week in Zephaniah, first of all, let me, for those of you who are visiting, let me explain. We are, we are in a series that's taking us through the whole fall. Uh, where we're going book by book through this section of the Bible known as the Minor Prophets. It's the last section of the Old Testament, and there are 12 little books. They're pretty short. That's why they're called Minor. That were mostly given within a several hundred year window when things had gotten very bad for Israel and for Judah, God's people who turned away from him and brought judgment down on themselves. These books represent God's word to them, warning of judgment and looking past judgment to a time when they would be restored, when salvation would come. We've been looking at, at one a week, and this week we come to Zephaniah. So if you were reading ahead this week in Zephaniah, I'm guessing that you noticed that it, it sounds really familiar. I mean, in a sense, there's really not much in Zephaniah that we haven't covered somewhere in one of the earlier books. It covers some of the same themes, uses some of the same language, so much so that, that some people in, in interpreting and studying Zephaniah have seen it as, as almost a summary of the prophets up to this point. And for that reason, I think it provides us a great opportunity this morning. Not to, uh, I'll admit, the first time I read through it, I'm like, what am I going to say that I haven't already said like 10 times already through these other books. But I, I think that's actually a blessing to us because of how quickly we all forget things. I mean, if, if put to it, I don't know that I could tell you what I said about Amos. And, that was, and I said it, and that was only about four or five weeks ago. I think Zephaniah offers us an opportunity to, to look back. Because Zephaniah comes at a particular place in the Twelve. It comes as the ninth prophet. Remember, this, book, this was organized originally as a book. A coherent book that was meant to be read as a whole, not as individual books. Almost like cha- So the twelve prophets are almost like chapters in that one book. This is the ninth, and it occurs at a turning point in the book. A turning point from the build-up to judgment and, and an attempt to understand that judgment and, and why it matters so much, to the last three of the prophets, which prophesy after Israel has already returned. Judgment has already happened, and some have started to return to the land. And rebuild what was lost through that time of judgment. So Zephaniah comes at the end of an era, if you will. It occurs after Israel has already been judged. So if, if, quick recap on the, on the basic history. What had been Israel has now divided. There was a civil war of sorts. And divided into a northern kingdom called Israel and a southern kingdom where Jerusalem is that they began to call Judah. Well, Israel in the north, they received judgment first. About a hundred plus years uh, before Judah was judged. Zephaniah occurs probably about a hundred years after Israel was judged, before Judah was judged, but not long before it. That ju- their judgment was coming. So Zephaniah would have had the, the benefit of reading books like Hosea and Amos, maybe even Joel and Obadiah. He would have, he would have been able to take part in the same sorts of things we've done, which is to consider those words and what they mean. And now, prophesying a hundred plus years later, to a nation that had not learned the lessons of the, that the earlier prophets had encouraged them to learn, just as they're on the cusp of receiving the same thing that the northern kingdom gets, Zephaniah regurgitates a lot of that testimony. So he provides us an opportunity, an opportunity to look back at why judgment matters 
at what it means about the nature of God that God chooses to judge, about what it, what it tells us about the nature of sin, that God is judging these specific things that are mentioned in this book, about how judgment helps us understand salvation better by contrast, how judgment and salvation are almost like mirror images of each other. All of those themes have been covered in earlier sermons. We want to go back over them through Zephaniah. And it boils down to this. God as judge is about exposing the proud. He is about exposing the proud. God as judge is about setting his name where it belongs. About a testimony to who he is and what he's like. Setting that right. When the proud set themselves up over against God as if they didn't need him, as if he wasn't necessary, as if they had everything that they needed, God is going to show that to be false. And the mirror image, God as redeemer... It's about exalting the humble. Those who find themselves the recipients of the salvation that's promised in this book and in the earlier prophets are always, without variation, those who know they have nothing to bring to the table and therefore are ready to receive what God offers. That's where we're headed this morning by way of getting into Zephaniah and also recapping everything we've said so far in this series. So Zephaniah is short. It's only three chapters. But for the sake of time, I'm not going to read all of them. I'm just going to ask you to stand with me, if you would, in honor of God's word, as we read from the first section of chapter 3, which summarizes both halves of this picture. This is God's word through the prophet Zephaniah, beginning in chapter 3, verse 1. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. He's talking here about Jerusalem. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She doesn't trust the Lord and does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice Each dawn he does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. I have cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For at that time... I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. 
They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. So God is judge. From chapter 1, verse 1, through verse 8 of chapter 3, which is probably about 80% of the book, we get an expose on God coming in judgment. Zephaniah is the last of the minor prophets to, to focus on this in depth, on, on what he and others of the prophets have called a day of the Lord, a day of judgment and decision. It reads, Zephaniah does, as, as a fitting summary, as I mentioned, of, of this message. So, so we're not going to look into this section of the book in very great detail. If, if this is the first time that you've uh, been part of this series, I'd refer you to the website. There are, there are sermons on earlier books that get at these themes in, in a lot more de- depth. I'd encourage you to take a look maybe at the sermon on Joel. Uh, maybe the best one to look at would be the sermon on Nahum. Uh, all these are online. You can listen to them there. And those try to get at both um, the nature of God's judgment and this, the question of what it means to come before a God who judges. It, it, that, that picture of God seems so far into what we would normally think of God being like. We think of him as love. And, and that's a question that I get into in depth in some of those earlier sermons. I'd refer you there if that's something that, that you're wondering about. For today, what I want to do is get at the uniqueness of Zephaniah, or, or his unique role as a summary of other themes that we've already seen. Zephaniah helps us most when he gets us at who it is that's going to be judged and why. Who it is that's going to be judged and why. Ultimately, Zephaniah, and through little hints here and there, presents God's judgment as a factor of God's jealousy. A factor of God's jealousy. We read one, uh, one reference to it there in chapter 3. There's another in chapter 1, verse 18. First, to God's jealousy for his name. I think we've got to understand that concept, big picture, before we go into the details of Zephaniah to understand where, where judgment is coming from. God's presented as a jealous God whose purpose is to expose all false security. The explanation for why God is jealous is rooted in the purpose of creation. We only think about jealousy as, as you know, a, a boyfriend whose girlfriend likes somebody else now, right? Or something, uh, that, uh, some degree of that basic phenomenon. And I won't say that there's none of that in the picture of God as, as a jealous God, but it's much different. It is much different. God is jealous to be recognized for who he is, to be understood and appreciated appropriately. The Bible talks about creation as there. The whole point of creation is to show what God's like, to, to give an exhibition of his glory. That's why the psalmist sing to him and sing of creation as declaring the handiwork of the Lord. That's why God, in, in, in creating and summarizing what, what he did in creation, talks about it as good. What makes it good? That it reflects what God is like. And, and that's especially true of humanity, created in the image of God to, to represent God on earth. And one of the main dimensions of human existence, one of the ways that, that human, humans being in the image of God help to explain what God is like, to give testimony to his nature, is that God has made us able to relate to him. And one of the reasons God wants us to relate to him is so that we find him to be a source of everything that we need. God wants us to relate to him in the way that a child relates to a father. 
as a complete source of security and trust and provision. That's the point of all of creation, to show God's glory. And the point of human creation is to relate to God as his people, receiving from God's hand everything that's necessary. You see how that glorifies God. It gives a testimony to him as someone who's enough. You can see why turning from God to other sources denigrates God's name. When you turn to other, other gods, when you try to do it yourself, what you're saying implicitly is that God isn't enough. You're making a statement about his name. Creation is meant to make one statement, you're making another one. That's why God is jealous. It's why the image of Hosea was so powerful. We looked at one of the earlier prophets several weeks back, Hosea, and, and it's built on the image of adultery where the prophet is told to marry a prostitute and told that the relationship you have with that prostitute will let you know what it's like for me and my people. God's people turn from him or unfaithful to him just like the prostitute was unfaithful to Hosea. A wife's faithfulness to her husband makes a statement about the sufficiency of that husband. He's enough for her, right? That was the statement that would have been made by Hosea's wife if she had stayed faithful. By not staying faithful, a wife's unfaithfulness, her felt need to go to another source makes a negative statement about the sufficiency of her husband, doesn't it? It says that he's not enough. That's what Hosea heard loud and clear from his wife, and that's what God hears every time his people turn from him to some other source. God's jealousy is a factor of his wanting to be known for who he is, and who he is is enough. He is all-sufficient. God wants his people to rest in him securely, to be peaceful in him perfectly. He wants them to enjoy what the Sabbath day was always meant to point to, the fact that God provides everything we need. We don't have to work for it. When people don't rest in him for that security as an all-sufficient source and guide, those people make a false statement about who he is and what he's worth that has to be exposed. It just has to be exposed. It has to be vindicated. That's the picture of judgment that comes out in Zephaniah. It's the impulse behind all the pictures of judgment promised during this bleak time in Israel's history. And what we want to notice about Zephaniah, by way of recapping this whole part of the Minor Prophets, is the purpose of God's judgment and the universal scale of it to set things right, to vindicate his name and the statement that his people make about who he is. Chapter 1 starts this out. Chapter 1 reads like a reversal of creation. If the creation narrative piles on, uh, moves God from one part of creation to another and shows him creating it and proclaiming it good, chapter 1 of Zephaniah reverses all of that and shows it falling apart. It's an image of what's coming. It's, a, it's, a, it's an indicator that the purpose of creation, the whole purpose of it has now been perverted and no longer testifies accurately, properly to who God is, and so it has to be reset. But notice the specific things he's going to expose in his judgment. Notice what he's going to expose and how they are false statements about God that's got to be, that have to be set right. Let me give you a few examples. First, first, here's what God's going to expose in his judgment. He's going to stretch out his hand against those who claimed he wasn't enough. I think that's how we can understand him talking about the, uh, those who practice idolatry, who worship other gods. This, is, this comes up in verse 4. And following of chapter 1. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Why? I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests 
along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the hosts of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord, yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. What's the picture of these three verses? It's of a people who no longer think God is enough for them, that they've got to supplement what security they might be able to get from God by turning to other sources as well. So he talks about them. They do call on God, but they they do it through the name of this other God called Milcom. They don't think that God going to him directly is enough through the way that he's set up. They've got to add to it. He, he talks about exposing those who called upon Baal. That was a Canaanite god related to material prosperity. It would be like somebody today trusting in Wall Street, in the financial markets, or in real estate, or you, you fill in the blank. Something that has to do with prosperity and material security. That's what it was to call on Baal. As if God himself could not, was not up to the task of supplying what they needed, they turned to Baal instead. God won't let that stand. That won't let that stand. He can't. They are saying about him that he isn't enough. He's got to expose that. And that's what the judgment is meant to do. Second example. Others claim that God wasn't necessary. First, those who claimed he wasn't enough, that they had to be supplemented by other deities. There's also called out in Zephaniah people who just didn't think God was necessary at all. They didn't really have anything to offer. That they could, they could do better on their own than they could do through him. There are several examples of this, but the best one, I think, is in chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. This is where he's calling out Nineveh. Nineveh is a city we looked at in another prophecy a couple weeks ago. It was was like the Paris of the ancient Near East. It was the city of power. Uh, Maybe maybe no one ever thinks of Paris as a very powerful city. So let's say it was the... uh, it was the Pentagon and the Paris of the ancient Near East. It was a symbol of power and also of high culture. It was a symbol of self-sufficiency and human achievement. Nahum, the prophet, prophesied that it would be destroyed. Zephaniah apparently prophesied before that time. But here's what he says is coming for this self-sufficient city. He will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. That's the country that Nineveh was the capital city for. And he will make Nineveh a desolation. A dry waste like the desert. Herds shall lie down in her midst. All kinds of beasts. You get, the, you get the irony here? A symbol of human culture, of human triumph over the, the forces of nature and primitivity and the wilderness, the chaos that is you know, the, the realm of wild beasts and desolate waste. God's going to turn this symbol of human achievement into nothing more than a desert. Herds lie down in your midst, all kinds of beasts. Even the owl and the hedgehog shall lodge in her capitals. The symbol of her power and, and strength, the, the tall towers, the, 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 the spires, the capitals, will be inhabited by owls. A voice shall hoot in the window. Devastation will be on the threshold and her cedar work will be laid bare. This, this is the exultant city that lives securely, that said in her heart, I am and there is no one else. You see what God is doing through this judgment? It's not random or capricious. This city, representing all those who in their pride don't look to God, represents a statement about who God is. That he's not there, or if he is there, he just isn't necessary. It's a statement of human pride and self-sufficiency. I am, Nineveh says, and there is no one else. God's judgment is going to expose that and set right the testimony to his name that they had made. Let me give you one more example. Judgment is going to come against those who claim he doesn't care. We've seen, one, we've seen other statements about God. The statement that he isn't enough. He's got to be supplemented with other idols. A statement that he isn't necessary. And we just don't need him. He doesn't have anything to offer that we can't do for ourselves. 
Another statement, another false statement about who God is and what he's like is that he just doesn't care. This comes up in chapter 1, verse 12. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps. It's an image of him going through the city looking for those who are guilty. And I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. You get the image there? It's a statement about God and what he's like. He doesn't care about, whether or, about what happens, good or ill, about whether his laws are obeyed. It, it, it reminds me of, as Lindsay and I owned a home for a while in this, um, this little subdivision down south near Brentwood, and, and they, had, they had a homeowners association of sorts. But it was pretty lame, and they didn't do anything. And they asked for dues, but they didn't really have any enforcement mechanism. And I think that they only got like maybe 20% of their dues each year. You guys know homeowner association dues that you, you pay in each year and they cut the grass around the community sign or whatever. We didn't really have any of these features. It, we, it was hard to see where your money was going anyway. And there was no penalty for not paying. So they got like maybe 15 or 20% annually of what, they, of, of what they asked for, what they demanded from people who live there. I won't tell you whether we were guilty, uh, whether we were part of the 20% or the 80. The point is that that was, a, that was a, making a statement about that authority of the homeowners association and what they offer. That they just don't, they don't care. So we're not going to pay. If they care, they back it up with some sort of teeth. They don't. When Judah and God's people disobey him, they, they are making a bet that he just doesn't care enough about those laws. Reminds me of another example. When I was a kid, I don't know if this is true, but I was told by a couple sources. They were also kids, so take it for what it's worth. <laughs> I was told by a couple sources that our city, which is a small uh, rural town with you know, probably an antiquated law book, uh, had this law that if you were spit on the sidewalk, you had to pay a $500 fine. That sounds like 1950s, right? Cleanliness and, you know, let's take care of our town. But... I mean, who was going to enforce that law, right? So I just went around spitting on sidewalks for the fun of it. Now, if I thought that it was going to have to pay 500 bucks because I spit on the sidewalk, if I thought they cared, if they really, really cared about that law, I wouldn't have done that. But I was making a statement through my actions about what they were like, the government, the, the laws. They don't matter. That's what Israel was banking on. They said in their hearts, whether or not they would ever admit it, they said in their hearts by the way that they acted, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. God's going to set that right. His judgment will going to, is going to expose this as far as it's found. Beginning with Judah's historical experience, a judgment that was coming for this people in the next few decades after this was written, that happened, but also expose it as far as it's found to the ends of the earth in all of time. That's the point of what comes after Zephaniah 1. Chapter 2 is a laundry list of nations that live around Israel and a, and a statement that God is going to expose false statements made about him by all of them, not just his people. He's not a territorial God. He's the God of the universe. He cares about what all are saying about his name, about how their actions represent him as those who are made in his image. And so, we're, we're, so chapter 2 talks about gathering the nations together. It looks to... to uh, the inhabitants of the seacoast where the Philistines live, so to Israel's west. He looks to, um, to the north, to, uh, to the taunts of Moab and the Ammonites. That those were to, to, the, uh, to the east. He looks up to Assyria and Nineveh up to the north. He looks to the Cushites, which is modern-day Ethiopia, to the south. 
He looks in every direction. It's not that he's only going to judge these people. It's that he's going to judge to the ends of the earth whoever is guilty of making false statements about who he is with the way that they choose to live. Judgment is coming, and it's coming as far as the false testimony exists. He's going to set it right. That's the point of Zephaniah. So the question is, have you ever thought of yourself, of your own actions, of your decisions and your priorities and your values, about what makes you happy, about what makes you sad? Have you ever thought about these things as statements on God? What kind of statement are you making about what he's like? Let's get really specific. When you complain, something as simple and every day as complaining. Have you ever thought about your complaining as a statement on God? That it says he's not wise enough to have done what you would have done had you been in his position. That you wouldn't have done it that way. You're complaining because things aren't what you want them to be. You're making a statement that God didn't know better. Or you're making a statement that he's not enough. That if you can't have this thing that you lack, then, then what's the point of having God? Even something as simple and every day as complaining makes a statement about whether God is enough for you and whether he's, his wisdom and providence are worth trusting. Think about something as every day as feeling superior over other people, about, about pride and the many ways that it sneaks up on us, the many times that you see something about someone else that makes you feel better about yourself. Isn't that a statement on God as well? Isn't that a statement not unlike what Zephaniah calls out as, 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 as if God is not necessary? As, as if, because to, to feel superior over someone else, you have to feel like you are responsible for the thing that you have that they don't have. It's not a gift. It's something you earned, and it sets you apart from them and makes you better. Anytime superiority in whatever form creeps into your heart, that's what you're saying. And aren't you saying when you say that that God isn't necessary, that you don't get what you have from him, but you build it for yourself. You say, you say the same thing that Nineveh did. I am, and there's no one else. What about when you give in to lust? If you struggle with pornography, and you do it over and over, and you can't seem to get any victory in it, and, and, and you, you're justifying every step along the road that leads you to making that click or turning that channel on, Aren't you saying implicitly that God just doesn't care? In that moment, isn't that the statement you're making? He's, he's, he's said clearly in the Bible what he feels about lust, that it's as bad as adultery itself, and that adultery itself is a, is a statement on the gospel, a false statement on the gospel. That's what God has said, but when, when, when you continue to do it, aren't you, aren't you making a statement that God just doesn't care? He said one thing, but he won't do anything about it. This isn't bothering him in the way that he claims it is. That's what you say. And the message of Zephaniah is that, and, and really all the prophets we've looked at so far, is that God is certainly going to vindicate his name. There's a day coming on which everyone everywhere will know him for who he is. And that vindicating judgment is going to stretch as far as his name is profaned. Wherever, his, wherever that's true, wherever a false statement about him is, is being made, that's how far his judgment goes to set it right. This is a picture that's meant to drive us to repentance, to seek the grace of God as we should have before. The beautiful thing about Zephaniah, like so many other prophets, is that he also says God will set the record straight 
God will prove himself to be who he is, the fully sufficient Lord of the universe, not just by a judgment that exposes false security and turns human pride on its head. He will also show himself sufficient by providing perfect security for all those who are humble enough to trust in him and not themselves. There's two sides to the coin of God's vindication of his name. It is proving that all those false statements are false. And it is also showing what he's really like by perfectly and completely securing those who trust in him. That's the image of Zephaniah chapter 3. If the world under judgment is a world of human self-sufficiency and rejection of God's sufficient provision, then the world restored is going to be a world full of people who know their needs, who know their weakness, and find in God alone an all-sufficient source of peace and security. Judgment is presented not as a final thing, but as a purging thing, as something that purges all remnants of pride, exposes fraud, exposes them for the fraud that they are, and leaves in its place only those who are broken enough to understand that they need God. Walk with me through verses 11 through 13 of chapter 3. These verses describe this kingdom that's coming. We've already read them, and I'm going to to go back through them again, just walk through them for the details. This is what the kingdom looks like. On these days you will not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you rebelled against me. Why? That's what I said a minute ago. I will remove from your midst the proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my mountain. There's the purging effect of his justice. There's no place for pride in the kingdom of God that's coming. But I will leave in your midst, here's who will enjoy this kingdom, a people that's humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord because they believe God can give it to them and that no one else can. Those who are left in Israel... They shall do no injustice. Why would they do injustice? Injustice is a product of feeling like you are threatened by someone else and you you must exploit them to make yourself more secure. Injustice is a product of a false security. There's no need for injustice when God is everything and provides everything. They will speak no lies. Why would you lie? In In a kingdom of perfect security where God is everything and you are nothing, you bring nothing to the table, why would you lie? Isn't a lie only to protect an image of yourself that you don't want to be tainted by the truth? You want, to, you want to keep yourself sanitized in the eyes of others? Isn't that, an, again, a product of false security? That you think your security is in others' uh, opinions of you and you've got to protect that at all costs? There's no need for that when in a, in a kingdom of people who are humble and lowly and find refuge in God who gives them all the identity that they need and gives it to them securely and irremovably. There's no place for lying. No, what this kingdom looks like is this. They shall graze, they shall lie down, and none shall make them afraid. They will graze, they will lie down, and none will make them afraid. So the question is how? This is the kingdom God promises that he's going to bring in. And the reason he promises to bring it in is that he wants to show what he is like. He wants to show that he is a God who can pull this off. A God who can give this kind of security that can't be found anywhere else. He He wants this kingdom to make a true and accurate statement about who he is. How is he going to do that? Verses 14 through 20. Give us the answer. In the form of a call to the people to sing with rejoicing. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, and shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Why? 
verse 15, explains what God has to do to make this kingdom possible. If God is going to exalt the the humble in place of the proud, then he's going to have to do everything that the humble need. Verse 15 summarizes what that is. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. Those three things. He has taken away the judgments. He has rid the world of your enemies. And now he is with you himself in person, ensuring that your security is inviolable. Paul tells us that all the promises of God are yes to us in Jesus. Isn't it clear to you how this promise, the promise of verse 15, the promise for those who seek refuge in God is so perfectly fulfilled and secured in Christ? In Christ, in his death, the judgments against us are taken away. In Christ and in his resurrection, our enemies, preeminently death itself, is once and for all wiped clear from the earth. And in Christ, we have God with us, Emmanuel, the king who is not ruling from some distant perch but is among us, one of us, walking in our bodies, literally, taking on flesh like we had, God with us, Emmanuel. Every piece to the puzzle that's necessary for this kingdom to be possible is a piece supplied perfectly in the one person who is Christ. And here's the payoff. God's jealousy is actually good news for us. We think of jealousy as a bad thing. We almost always think of jealousy as as a sign of weakness or as a sign of self-centeredness, something like that. Zephaniah presents God's jealousy as good news to us. And the reason is that the same jealousy, the same jealous regard for God being known for who he is that drove him to judgment drives him also to a perfect and complete redemption. Because God has now identified his name, his name in all the earth, with his ability to perfectly supply everything that we need. For the humble, God proves himself to be God through the way that he redeems them. So, taking the categories Zephaniah 3 gives us, that this is a kingdom made up of the humble, made up of the outcasts and the lame, here's what it means for you. God shows his greatness in providing security to those who are weakest, in providing a haven for those who are outcast, and rest for those who are weary. The greater the need, the greater appears his solution to that need. The bigger, we, the bigger our problems, the more glorious the solution to our problems. So, God, in a very real sense, delights over you in spite of your imperfections. And even because in those imperfections, in your weakness, he is showing himself strong. So, are you weary? Are you exhausted from trying to feel better, trying to be better, trying to be good enough? Exhausted maybe from carrying the weight of guilt that you feel for your sin. If that's you, there's good news. Because the king provides rest for the weary. He takes delight in you. Read verse 17 with me. The Lord your God is in your midst. Jesus supplies this for us. How? He is a mighty one who will save, and he will rejoice over you with gladness, and he will quiet you by his love, and he will exult over you with loud singing. 
This is one who is mighty enough to compensate for the fact that you're worn out, that your works have left you incomplete, that they've left you guilty. This is not a promise that your shortcomings, whatever it is that's weighing you down, are imaginary. It's not that kind of promise. It's a promise that in Christ your guilt is removed perfectly. When you trust in him, what he did for you is enough to compensate for for no matter how bad you may have been. In covering the shortcomings that you have been guilty of, the glory of his grace shines even brighter. Do you realize that in this, in this exchange, you honor him. You give a testimony to how trustworthy his work for you is. And that's why he delights over you. No matter how bad you may feel, no matter how much shame... The Lord does not look on you right now with shame, but with delight. He takes joy in looking on you as someone that he has the power to redeem. Are you outcast? Are you rejected or let down by your friends? Have you been disappointed by those that you thought were your, your best source of security? There's good news for you, if that's you. Jesus was abandoned so that you don't have to be. Jesus was abandoned, so you don't have to be. He was abandoned by all that he loved, all his friends. And ultimately, he was abandoned even by the Father himself on the cross. He was told, he he cried out to God on the cross, Why have you forsaken me? That's what drove him to tears on the night of his death. He was abandoned so that you don't have to be. So that even if father and mother should forsake you, as the psalmist says, you can know that the Lord will take you up. He was abandoned so that he could permanently bring you into God's presence. So that in Zephaniah's words, the Lord, your king, could always be in your midst. So that he could be God with us, Emmanuel, never to leave us or forsake us. If you've been let down, or if you've been cast out by your society, whatever that might look like, that can be good news for you. Because the pain that comes with that could be a blessing if it drives you from false security into the arms of Jesus. Are you lame? Do you feel wounded and scarred? Do you feel like damaged goods because of whatever may have happened in your life? There's good news. This is a king who builds his kingdom and who makes it strong from the ranks of the lame. Because the more lame they are, the less strength they bring to the kingdom, the more strong he appears when he upholds it perfectly as its king. As he holds you up and makes you run and not fall, he builds his reputation as a good and loving king who is able and willing to give legs to those who have none. Are you afraid? Are you afraid? Are are, are you prone to anxiety? Do you realize that this is a promise that God has staked his reputation to providing you perfect security? He has identified himself as a king in whose kingdom there is no cause for fear. That none will make his people afraid no matter what. That he is the one who has completely once and for all vanquished all enemies. God's kingdom is full of people who are unable to protect themselves and know that they can't control their their safety. But these people seek refuge in the name of the Lord and graze and lie down and nothing can make them afraid because he has cleared away all enemies and with his love he quiets them. Isn't that a beautiful image? He will quiet you with your love, with his love. This is a kingdom in which God delights to show himself strong 
in the midst of our weakness and because of it. It's a kingdom in which only those who know they're lame have any place. Ultimately, if you don't count yourself among the lame, the outcast, the poor, the weary, then you count yourself among the rich, the powerful, the proud, the self-reliant, and ultimately the self-deceived. And you belong among those on whom judgment is coming. But if you count yourself among the humble, you're among those who are ready to embrace the lordship of Jesus. The message of Christ that he came bringing was a message of repentance and faith. He announced that the kingdom is here. So repent and believe the gospel. And what that looks like is to recognize that you bring nothing to the table, that any attempt that you've had, that you've made before, to build up security for yourself was idolatry at best and has to be turned from. What it calls for is a lame outcast, poor, weary, broken down faith that God is enough to compensate for all of our weaknesses. And that's a kingdom in which the humble are exalted and God proves himself to be who he is, an all-sufficient Savior. Would you pray with me? Lord, please make it so. We are so prone to false hope, to solutions for our problems that are more tangible, that aren't shrouded in the mystery that is... That, uh, that, that shrouds you and, and hides your face from us, that aren't affected by the, the darkness that so often clouds our eyes. We are so prone to more tangible hopes. Would you show us that however tangible they may be, they are no hope. Would you give us a vivid sense of this coming kingdom that drives out, that in comparison to which all other false security seems obviously counterfeit. Lord, would you make us strong in the strength of your Son who is in whom all the promises of God are yes to us. Make it so, we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.